You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. You're listening to the Pull Box Podcast. The International Graphic Novel Book Club. Here are your hosts, Curtis Finley and Michael Cohen. Hello there and welcome back to the Pullbox Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and today we have a very special guest. Uh, she is uh, a very famous cartoonist. I'm sure you all have heard of the comic strip, For Better or For Worse. I'd like to welcome Lynn Johnston to the show. Thank you for being here with me today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Curtis. This is great. Yeah, I, um, I'm i going to get the fanboy part of the podcast kind of out of the way right at the beginning here. I just want to say... Um, that you've been a big inspiration for me and my work for many years. Um, I have a I have a, uh, a web comic about my children, and one of the reasons why I decided to do it that way is because I grew up reading the adventures of your family. I know mm. your family is it's sort of semi autobiographical, but uh, um, I wanted to kind of. Uh, do the same thing. It's such a great keepsake and a good memory. It is. Yeah. And I am about the same, uh, just a few years younger than Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was reading it as a kid, he was just for, just that much further ahead in mm-hmm. life than I was. And, uh, and I used to take the books out of the library and, uh, and read them all the time. And I really identified with his, with his character and his, the, the way he had his outlook on life mm-hmm. and, and that kind of stuff, his humor even. And um, so in preparation for this podcast... I went. I pulled all of my books out of storage and went through them all and read them again. And it was fascinating because now I identify with Ellie and John, the parents, the parents, right. because I have three kids of my own. And going through everything that they are going through, especially now that my kids are entering school and all that, it's like wow. It's it's such an interesting strip where you can have um, so many different people relating on different levels. Um, something like Dilbert. Dilbert doesn't get that sort of uh, multi-generational um, But he has a readership. different readership, and his Definitely. whole situation is different, mm-hmm. and his following's enormous. Like, yeah. There's something for everybody in the comics. There sure is, and uh, and that's what's so great about it. And I feel like, with for better or for worse, there's something for everybody within that one comic strip, and that's what's so great about it. Mm. So... Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about well, we're going to talk about a lot of things, hopefully, and um, and but let's start with a little bit about um, what you were doing before for better or for worse. Now, I'm a big animation fan. I love sort of the history of animation, and I understand that you were in animation before you got into comics. Is that is yeah that right? Yeah, um, I went to the Vancouver School of Art, and in third year, I dropped out to take a full-time job with Cano West Films, which at the time was on Burrard Street, just before the bridge. It's no longer there. The building is gone, of course. But uh, it was KVOS-TV. It was Channel 12 out of Bellingham, but they had a satellite station in Vancouver. And they had taken on a lot of uh, animated um, advertisements, things like that, just little short animated clips, and managed to get a, a contract with Hanna-Barbera to do some dreadful Saturday morning stuff. <laughs> Just the worst. This was the 70s? 60s. The 60s, okay. Late 60s, yeah, okay. mid, mid to late 60s. So that was my very first art job. And I loved it because I... I belonged. They were my people. Mm-hmm. I just moved into that place, and I still know some of the uh, artists right now. We were that close, and we, the shows were awful. It was Abbott and Costello and and Shazam and and uh, stuff like that. And the the soundtracks were just screaming Abbott. Abbott. <laughs> yeah. We hated it, but you learned so much about. Um, timing and and just the whole process of of filming and we were all in the ink and paint department there were 16 girls shoulder to shoulder we were paid a dollar an hour we weren't allowed to uh join a union we had to (laughs) sign a contract to say we wouldn't join a union we were really badly treated we um we worked 24 hours so you know you'd start i you know five o'clock in the morning or you would start seven o'clock at night i mean it depended on where you were there you'd rotate through a 24-hour cycle Wow. And they, because they wanted it 
fast and they wanted it now and they yeah. you know they didn't care if it was good or not and we were never praised we were always criticized right but the fact that it was animation and there was no other way to learn the industry we didn't care we were just there really to learn and to be part of this scene and um my friend cecily who was my neighbor in painting her mom and dad were writers for disney and because disney would never buy anything from a woman her dad took credit for all the writing and they couldn't believe how prolific he was but his <laughs> wife wrote half the stuff and they wrote a lot of the disney comic books for scrooge mcduck and gyro Gearloose oh, wow. and donald and the kids and that type of thing yeah. and so cecily was married to a broadcaster radio guy and i was married to a television cameraman with the cbc and the four of us took off to los angeles all hoping to get work yeah. in los angeles well cecily and I were in, uh, offered a job at J. Ward Studios oh, nice. on um, Sunset Boulevard, yeah. which was great. Yeah. I mean, Bullwinkle was revolving on yeah. a you know platform outside, and it was a funky old house. And we were given the opportunity to start now in backgrounds. They needed somebody right now, so okay. we were saying yes, of course. And but the guys couldn't get a job, oh. and because TV guys and radio guys were a dime a dozen in Los Angeles, and we said we don't care, get a janitor's <laughs> job, we don't care. But those were the days when you followed your husband right and so four of us drove back two very unhappy would be animals. yeah right <laughs> so you never yeah. you didn't take the job after all no we c- i couldn't take yeah. the job no and they did super chicken and georgia the jungle yeah. and you know rob you know bullwinkle rocky and bullwinkle i mean the best of the best was happening in in that studio mm-hmm. but as it turned out ultimately it was a good thing that i didn't get the job because well, I don't know. I don't know. It might have been the best <laughs> thing ever, but I'm saying it was a good thing because um, my husband and I headed off to Ontario where he could get a better job in television, right. which he did in Hamilton okay. at CHCH. And I managed to score a job with McMaster University in the medical department doing charts and graphs. Right. And uh, another uh, guy who was a, uh, a graphic artist was hired as well. And when they found out that we were both really good artists, they put us through first year medical school with the students. Hmm. And it was a brand new medical school with a whole new philosophy. They wanted to have the students learning at their own pace through slide tape presentation. So there was all of these little booths with slide tape carousels and headphones and and we illustrated surgery and and different lectures and we illustrated textbooks and uh, we actually did some animation and learned more about photography and and uh, specialized uh, surgical work, um, rotoscoping, all kinds of stuff there. So it just continued on. So this was not cartooning work, though. This was like serious it anatomy was serious. drawings yeah. and yeah. such. Wow, that and that's a, such a different yeah. ball game. <laughs> but I loved it. Yeah, I loved it because I I want to know how the body works and I want to know how I just. I'm a questioner. Yeah. I, I love science and I love I love to be shown things and to understand it. And often understanding comes through illustration. So um, I got to illustrate some fabulous surgery, a lot to do with uh, the development of the fetus. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I would work with fetuses pinned open on, on sort of uh, black cork boards. And I would be working on these different... Uh, slices of of anatomy with these babies but i'd never had a baby so it to me it was just a really interesting little rubber character (laughs) but nowadays it would affect me deeply because there would be some spiritual connection to that right right yeah Yeah. (laughs) but i learned a lot and when you're working for a great big organization they always need invitations and menus and uh posters and things like that and so because I could cartoon, they would have me do that. And I finally was just doing comic art because a number of the doctors loved the way that it was fascinating for students to see something that was cartooned and that they would listen to a lecture if they <laughs> saw something funny on the screen. Right, yeah. So eventually they hired a couple more artists to do the serious medical stuff, and I just did cartoons. Mm-hmm. It was a crazy thing. Well, there you go. And you yeah. didn't expect that to happen. No, I didn't. And so where did it go from there? Well, I did a whole lot of cartoons for my 
uh, obstetrician who was the uh, head of obstetrics and gynecology there at McMaster. And he was um, a specialist in, you know, difficult birth, but he took me as a patient because he liked me as a person and I was doing lots of cartoons for him. And uh, I did a whole bunch of cartoons for the ceiling above his examining tables. Okay, so uh, people would have something to look at. That's (laughs) right. And so that started my career with Universal Press Syndicate. Surprisingly, because uh, he talked me into finding a publisher and uh, like your first book here, just knocked my socks off that my art could be in a book and that people would buy it. Yeah. Isn't it exciting? So what book was that? It was David We're Pregnant. It was the very first little book and it was just about pregnancy and how strange strange it is for the first time. How, well, you know, you've got a family now and it's unlike any other experience ever, both physically and emotionally and everything. So uh, this book sold very well, and I did two other books. Mm-hmm. I have one of them. I have um, Hello, Mom, Hello, Dad. Hi, Mom, Hi, Dad. Hi, yeah, Mom, that Hi, was Dad. the yeah. second one. Okay. Yeah. And then Did They Ever Grow Up was the third. Ah. And at the time, I thought I would continue as a medical artist and just do a book a year. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, life changed. Uh, I, I was divorced. I was a single mom. Uh, I changed from working for McMaster University to having my own graphic art studio in my house where okay. I freelanced for doctors doing both medical art and uh, and cartoons. And I would go around to every ad agency with my baby on my back and mm. my folio and beg for work. And I got everything from posters for, for the library who were great. They would pay me 30 bucks right on cue to uh, magazine illustrations for Atlantic Magazine who didn't pay me for 90 days and even then didn't pay me those schmucks. Uh-oh. Are you listening, Atlantic yeah, right. Magazine? <laughs> Get on that. Is there interest now? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as an artist, you really do, you, you starve a lot, as do musicians and, and, and actors and anybody yeah. who works yeah. doing the thing that they, they really love and were born to do. So you said that that... Um, how did that lead to the comic strip then, if that was your inter- introduction to Universal Press Syndicate? Well, the three books uh, were published in Canada, and the publishers in Canada were not were not hanging together. They were going out of business. Uh, two of them actually went right out of business, okay. but not before they had sold the rights to a company in Minneapolis. And this guy had a small publishing company, but he could see the potential in these books. So he took the three books and he sent them to Universal Press Syndicate with a letter saying, if you don't syndicate her, I will. Hmm. And okay. he would have. He was a he was a really you know forward thinking guy. Yeah. So I was very nervous, uh, and I got a, a letter back from Universal Press Syndicate wanting twenty cartoons right away. They wanted three weeks worth of work immediately. They gave me no time at all. Okay. And by then I was expecting baby number two, married again, yeah. on my way to northern Manitoba. My husband was a flying dentist. And uh, we were packing to leave when I got this this letter wanting three weeks worth of work. So yeah. on packing boxes, I drew three weeks worth of work starring us because I couldn't think of anything right. else of to, course, that I could yeah. draw over and over again. Mm-hmm. And they sent me a 20-year contract. Which, unreal. 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 You bet. And what a great thing to, to get before leaving for a tiny northern mining town where I wouldn't be able to run my graphic art business right. or do animation or do anything like I was doing. Yeah. I thought I might be able to continue to do the books, but then we didn't have anything but Xerox. Right. I think fax had just come in, and fax was very sketchy. You know, you, yeah. it was hard to really see what you got through at the other end. It came on sort of a warm, thin, coated paper. So, and this yeah. was the mid-70s? Yes. Um, and so then you were in this tiny town in Manitoba, and you were starting to develop your comic strip then, the, the real, actual right. version of it? Yeah. Yeah, I asked if I could have a six-month lead time. So they gave me um, a development contract for six months so that I could learn to write dialogue because the first, the three little books were all single-panel gags, right. which are totally different, as you know, because yes. when you do single-panel... It's, it's, the gag is right there and it has to come through in one shot. Yep, there's where no setup and no staging setup. is different. Right. There's and, timing, there's yep. backgrounds, you know, there's, yeah. it's like a little storyboard. So it's a totally different set of skills. And I didn't have those. 
And they connected me with Kathy Geisweit, who did a strip called Kathy, of course. which was a self-deprecating story yep. about this little round girl. And Kathy herself was slender and gorgeous and quite different from the character she drew. And she was wonderful. She's one of the funniest people you could meet. She was on, um, she was on Johnny Carson three or four times. Hilarious, just yeah. wonderful person. And her skill was as a writer. Okay. She had been in advertising for years. Her dad was in advertising. And the writing is the thing that really makes a comic strip work. Of course. I mean, you can have a very minimalist kind of style of drawing, but if your writing is superb, you can get away with almost stick figures. Yeah. So if your writing isn't good, your, your art fails terribly. And so I really needed to learn how to write. And I had a great editor, really good editor, who, with whom I got along well. And again, that's another rapport you have to build because, you know, you have a certain arrogance there and say, well, what right do you have <laughs> to, to edit my work? Yeah. But if you get a really good editor, they can only make you better yeah. and, and give you a sense of direction and, and really set the bar. So I had a great editor. His name was Lee Salem, and he's a great friend today. We write long letters back and forth, which to me is a joy because, you know, he's always, he and I are about the same age, but... He's always seemed like somebody I wanted to work for right, or work yeah. hard for. And I think you need that. I think all of us need that. You need a mentor, uh, someone that you, whose expectations you want to live up to. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just trying to please yourself and, and your audience. But the feedback from the audience isn't as important as the feedback from a really good editor, Right. I think. So how did Kathy teach you? She told me to write a script. She said, imagine it as, as if you were writing a, a script for a sitcom and go from there. So I wrote everything out as a script. It looked just like a script. And I would sit on my couch with my back against a couple of pillows. I had my mandatory cup of coffee and yeah. my knees were bent with a blank pad of paper on my knees. And uh, I had a bag next to me in which was a pair of scissors and a whole lot of little white sticky tabs that if I made a mistake, I could put a sticky tab over it and rewrite it. Right. And I was very methodical and I never threw anything out. I, I took my time. And... Uh, after a while, you learn to trust your, your skill. There are days when you can't think of a thing, not a thing. But as long as you focus on it, as long as you fly around your imagination in the room that the characters live and you are one character after another, even the dog, you inhabit their body and you think, what would they be saying? What would they be doing? And even if you can't think of a thing that day, guaranteed you'll come up with something the following day. Hmm. So you have to trust your skill after a while. But at first it's terrifying because you've got that daily deadline. Right. And you're going to turn out stuff you don't like. Mm -hmm. You're going to send it off and it's out there and ready to go into the paper and you might not like it, but that's the nature of the beast. So when you first started, um, when you first started your comic strip, what, um, what was it like being a woman in this industry at that time? Because there weren't very many women cartoonists. I think, like, Kathy's the only other one that comes to mind right. in, that, in that year. Fortunately, the young men in the industry were welcoming and supportive, and a lot of the older cartoonists were as well. Mm -hmm. But there were a few hardcore old boys club kind of guys yeah. who would love at a meeting to draw a picture of me naked and then hand it to me. Well, of course, I would draw a picture of them naked <laughs> and hand it back to them. But even if I sparred with them, they were still making, you know, Betty Boop jokes. Yeah, yeah. And it's awfully hard to change these old guys, right? And I met one on the street the other day, a British guy who was talking to me, and, and the way he was talking, it was so insulting. But then I thought, Jesus, guy, you can't help it. You're one of them, <laughs> right? But the people our age, I mean, any anybody over 20 who's in the, in the work field now is, we're all equal. If yeah. you've got the talent... I mean, it's like music. If you've got the chops, it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, where you live, you know, right. how you dress. If you've got it, you're, you're part of the group, and, mm -hmm. and that's all that matters is that you're doing a great job. So I was president of the National Cartoonist Society for a while. I really got involved, got to know everybody, um, and I thrived in that. I, I was so lucky to meet all the people that were my heroes, like from Mad Magazine and, you know, uh, Will Eisner and, oh, and yeah. all the people from, uh, you know, uh, uh, DC and, uh, and Marvel Comics. And, yeah. and Charles Schultz became a very close friend and uh, all kinds of editorial people. 
I'm close to Mike Peters, who does Mother Goose and Grimm, oh, yeah. and uh, and Jan Elliott, who does Stone Soup, and um, Hillary Price, and just on and on and on. I mean, if I started naming the people to whom I I we'd be here all night. <laughs> we would because I I feel like I'm part of a, an elite but loving and caring group of people who are not. Um, I thought that there would be a sort of a Hollywood welcome, we hope you fail kind of attitude. But it wasn't that at all. It was supportive and and extremely welcoming. Oh, great. Yeah. Wow. So, and that's quite a shift then from how you were treated in animation. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What oh, a, yeah. What a difference that, I don't know, a decade or so. Well, we were just, we were factory workers. Yeah. And, and the only time that the boss, who was a greasy guy that would come in every so often, paid any attention to us, was because we were wearing miniskirts at the time. Right. It was, I mean, and we would watch him kind of pant and slobber his way around the room and then leave again. And he had no idea what a joke he was, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but, I'm just, my wife and I are just starting to watch uh, Mad Men and, you know, kind of figuring out that whole... The whole the way things worked back then. I, I don't know if that's an accurate portrayal is, or not. It is actually. Yeah, it is because it sounds like yeah. it from what you're saying. It as is. Well. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, and some girls yeah. ask for it. Yep. And some guys uh, are, are nicer than they appear. Yep. They play along with these games for the sake of the other guys. They don't want to look like somebody who isn't part of the club, and it's it's the way it is. Hmm. Wow. Um, let's see. So tell me about your your comic strip family versus your real family. Like where where why did you decide to make it um, so much like your own family? Because they were there. They were they were uh, I, I shouldn't say targets, but they were my inspiration. But the characters in the strip, I tried not to draw them like my own kids. Michael looked a lot like my son. Aaron, Elizabeth, I, Katie had dark brown hair and I gave Elizabeth blonde curly hair. Um, you know, and I, if I ever did anything that was exactly what happened in the house, I would ask them first if I could use the material. Okay. I always asked them. Yeah. And um, my husband probably got socked in the head more than anybody. I, I <laughs> you know, wasn't kind to him in a lot of ways. But he was very funny and I often used word for word the things that he'd say. And uh, he was he was great uh, for the strip uh, because he was such a funny guy with words. He was a, a the one liner king, right? Good, yeah. <laughs> so um, often, if something happened and I could use the material, it was it eased whatever it eased up on the situation because it was you know made uh, made fun of and and turned into part of the comic art mm-hmm. i kept the characters in the strip 3 years younger than my kids i let my kids grow up a little bit and that was partly by design but partly because when i first started i thought i was going to keep the characters the same age the whole time okay but as kids grow they get more interesting actually yeah. their vocabulary changes and their relationships change with them each other and with you and i couldn't let that material go so i brought in a dog which we didn't have yeah and um produced another baby a few years later and that was actually Kathy Guys White's suggestion she oh, yeah. said well you should you know if you want a baby in this strip if you've lost the baby because Elizabeth's grown up have another Put one another one in there and I said well I can't do that because I'm not really having a baby she said Lynn you know <laughs> it's a cartoon <laughs> so what's funny is that um you know Ellie has this late pregnancy and I actually gained the weight oh, I mean yeah. I was so involved in this thing that I started to feel pregnant and think about it all the time and it was a phenomenon for me that I was that close to the character that I would actually think about pregnancy as if it was really happening again so April actually looks like my daughter Kate as a child okay but what was great about having the imaginary third child was that I didn't have to worry about embarrassing my own children or showing something that really happened that they wouldn't want me to show yeah, so April was free and clear. Her name was April because she was born on April the 1st because she yeah. didn't exist. <laughs> and friends in North Bay covered our lawn with storks and congratulations. Oh, really? And that's so funny. Threw a surprise party for me for the birth of this imaginary baby. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And um, what point? Um, what point would you say Michael and um, Elizabeth stopped being your own kids, or did they? Uh, they were always my kids, but my own kids went in different directions. My son went into television. Mm-hmm. And my daughter went to art school in Vancouver. She came out here to teach snowboarding and ended up helping a friend of mine hang a show, an artist friend hang a show in Whistler. And yeah. they got to talking, and she had a folio. And he said, wow, you should go apply it to the Emily Carr. Nice. And she got in. So she's a grad from there, and she can do just about anything. She can do electronic sculpture and pottery and wow. you know, work in fabric and leather and metal and you know, just about anything. And so, But she's working for me. It's much easier right now for her with the two little kids to work at home, and so she manages the business, but um, she also wrote the last book that came out. Right. So uh, she has many skills. I'm thinking once her kids get in school, she'll fly free and do something wonderful. (laughs) Good. One of my favorite characters, um, especially in the early years, is Lawrence. Right. And um, he's such a fascinating character, and because... All you you, all this bad stuff happened to him in those early years. It seems like he, because because Michael is kind of the character that we all identify with. Um, he he goes along through life and not much happens to him in the early years at least. But then Lawrence is like single mom. He moves away. Um, like you you throw a whole bunch of things at him. Now was that uh, was that intentional um, to use him as a, the storytelling device rather than have those things happen to Michael? No, it wasn't intentional because when you start, again, you're thrown into this and once you start you're it's like being in a raft down the Colorado River. you're not going to get out till you get to the other end yeah. and I I wanted different characters in the story to give it depth and interest so Connie was supposed to be a nattering single woman who had a career who would forever show up Ellie by saying well you know I don't have children so I'm a free agent and I can date and I can wear these lovely clothes and go on trips and be a business person and I thought that she would be uh, a foil for Ellie, like the nemesis, the I thought they would be enemies, right? <laughs> yeah, that didn't didn't happen at all. It didn't happen, and I guess because I'm very realistic to say, well, nobody's all bad. There's always a good side to somebody. I mean, even Hitler liked little kids and puppies. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> and uh, I mean, there's always a good side to somebody. So I couldn't make her bad enough. I also wanted to draw characters that were not familiar to me. Like, you tend to draw what you see in the mirror, and it's a challenge to draw somebody different. So mm-hmm. I wanted a black character in the strip. Yeah. But because the strip is black and white, and if you put a screen on a character's face, you can't, you can't really see their facial expressions. Right. And this was before color was in the dailies. So mm-hmm. I couldn't have him genuinely black. So I had him darker skinned with the black curly hair right but he still was a you know a, a brown kid right mm-hmm. yeah so where does he fit in does he have a family what was his family like i don't know he was just floating around connie was floating around annie was floating around but she again was a neighbor who had marriage problems and had two kids and lived over the fence they're catholic so they didn't go to the same school as Michael and Elizabeth. And was I going to get into the Catholic, non-Catholic debate? <laughs> I don't know, but I like to challenge myself. So I left that in yeah. my mental library. Right. And eventually I had to start connecting these people and figure out where did they live and how did they relate. And that didn't happen for maybe two years. And Connie no longer was uh, a, a negative. She was suddenly a person with a heart and soul and a, a life. And darn if Lawrence didn't appear to be part of her life. Right. So then you have to fabricate a story that why would she have a brown child? Well, she was married to a, a man who was South American, black South American man. But um, I was involved with the medical missionaries for a while. Yeah. And I uh, had gone down to South America and had experienced some of that lifestyle. And so that, to me, seemed like a perfect way for her, as uh, having a, a nursing background, to meet somebody down there and, and have a relationship yeah. and hoping to marry, come back expecting this man's child, which is what she did. Right. So, so uh, you, yeah. You, and you didn't tell that story until... Lawrence was an adult. Right. So did you have that in your mind for a while or did you 
think of it that. It took me a long time to come up with that. Yeah. Because your mind is racing around every other character, including the dog. Yes. Who's doing what? Who and and is this funny? And is and you do a little vignette, and it can't last for longer than two weeks. Say. Right. Otherwise, your audience gets bored. Yeah. You still have to have gag a day. You still have to have some kind of punchline every single day for the person who doesn't read it Monday and Tuesday and Friday. Their Wednesday still has to have some merit. You right. can't just hope that they're going to follow a storyline. So yeah. they had to be simple, easygoing stories. Each day had to have some kind of a punchline. And then I would wrap it up and go on to something else. So in my creative days, when I'm on the couch with this pad on my lap, I'd be floating around saying, well, what's happening in the neighborhood now? Who have I not brought into the mix lately? And yeah. and, and then you've got to punctuate a story with unrelated gags that are about school or about clothing or about the weather outside just so that it doesn't become a boring endless story that that you have to really work to make interesting with you know and then you can't have a beginning middle and an end because it's endless right right? yeah so i had little vignettes yeah and i think the story about lawrence was the longest story I ever wrote and because you needed the time mm-hmm. to develop it. But by then the readership was comfortable with these vignettes and also comfortable with the characters. It takes three years for readers to care about your characters because they have less than 30 seconds a day to read your work. I mean, how long does it take to read a comic strip? Maybe done three seconds? Yep. One, two, three, I'm done. Yep. Right? Because we all read fast and we all absorb stuff fast and you're on to the next thing. Yep. So Less than 30 seconds, maybe three seconds a day to trap your audience into reading you the following day. And so after three years, they'll say, oh, yeah, Lawrence is the kid that Mike hangs out with. He's in the same class at school along with Gordon. And they would they just like you'd say, well, Charlie Brown never will kick the football. And Lucy's always right. a fudge budget. And Linus is always going to be pensive and... and uh, thoughtful and and you get to know the characters but it takes three years Mm. which is a long time and a lot of new young cartoonists burn out after three years yeah because it's a lot of work that is a lot of work well and especially (laughs) with the amount of characters you shove into your strip there yeah that was yeah that was something but we all have a lot of people in our lives yeah yeah and that juggling act that you mentioned um so what is uh when you were in your heyday let's say I don't know, once you got to maybe the late 80s when you've established like this neighborhood of characters, how did you keep track of all of them? I didn't, obviously. People (laughs) who were real scholars of the strip would say, hey, this character was named this the last time we saw her. (laughs) And she looked like this. I mean, I did lose track. I lost track of all kinds of things and I made a lot of mistakes. And and it wasn't until we did animation that I had to really keep track and and have everything. And I, and I also had a, a wonderful gal who do it because websites happened. Yeah. And with websites come uh, a real um, searchable archive, and people could go back and say, "Hey, look at this! You know, right, yeah. <laughs> you, the kitchen was in this direction last time, right? <laughs> You've changed it." Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing that people pay attention. They to, do. to that closely. They do. Yeah. And and you you can't get away with stuff, you really can't. No. Uh, and it's okay because it's it's wonderful to know that somebody is that interested in your work to to be that uh, <laughs> uh, well no I, I uh, observant. observant yeah <laughs> that's the word yeah for sure um, I'm I'm fascinated in in the aging aspect of it and um, as I was going through your old books. Um, because I was kind of reading them in an accelerated pace, these characters, they gradually age so nicely. Um, how, uh, how did you decide to age your kids or like, or the, the people and not just the kids, but the adults as well? Like mm-hmm. when, when did you decide to add those bags under Ellie's eyes and, you know, those little details <laughs> yeah. that make them older? Well, I, I did it. It, it's you say it was gradual, but it was actually in fits and starts. I would have. It's nice to have characters that don't change. Yeah, everything's the same. Da 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 da. da. You sure. just carry on, and then you say, "Oops, five years has gone by. Maybe there should be." A, Ellie never changed her hairstyle because she was too much of a, of a. a She's a, the constant. Yeah, yeah, constant character. But Elizabeth and some of the other characters needed to change, and uh, and and. 
the dog had to get old and things yeah. like that. And and so I would get to a point where I think, oops, I've, I've got to make a change. And then I would check my charts to see how tall everybody would be, the teenagers, how tall right. they would be compared to the parents. And I had yeah. growth charts. Okay. And every so often I'd check the growth charts. And it's surprising how tall a two-year-old is. <laughs> yeah. You, when you're drawing something freehand without checking height measure, you know measurements, you just draw them far too small. Okay. Because in your head you think, oh, two years old, but I've I've got a two year old, and gosh, he's tall. You know, my yeah. grandson is much bigger in reality than you'd think of him being as a two year old. Yeah. So I had to be very cognizant of the heights of everybody. Of course, the adults stay the same, but their looks change a little bit. Yeah, and I I remember. Um... I was reading, there was the story where um, Elizabeth cuts her hair really short. And then from that point, it's like a few years, I think, up until like Michael's wedding or something like that, her hair just gets longer and longer and longer and longer. And um, like that's, that t- I think that takes some, some sort of f- forethought in order to yeah, grow I, it out like that, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have seen other comic strips where people have changed the hair and then suddenly the hair is long again because they didn't like the way the character looked. Right. And I thought, I, I don't want to do that because if it's reality-based to some extent, it better reflect that in, yeah. in aging and hair and that sort of thing. And I know I ha- Ellie had a permanent for a while. Right. It was very curly, but I couldn't just change it. It had to grow <laughs> out. <laughs> That's amazing that you can keep track of all yeah. of those little details well such. i had to yeah I, I had to for myself but also for the readers and i had great editors who would have said to me you know what you you know you've got to watch this change that you know, check this they did their job they were great so how far in advance did you plan your stories and i think of um the example i want to give is um your the the grandparents ellie's parents realize that they need to sell their huge house and move into something smaller so they talk about it and then it's like a couple months later they sell the place and then a couple months after that they you know they they clear it out and move or something like that right. so it's like how far ahead are you thinking when you're ta- when you're thinking of these storylines well once you know somebody's going to move you 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 jot it in your you, calendar. you look at it yes in fact i did keep it on a calendar hmm. but you also think ahead and and i was always thinking eight weeks ahead you had to be ahead of the publishing, publication date of the daily six weeks and the color Sundays eight weeks. Yeah. Nowadays, it's a matter of hours, I guess. Really? But in those days, all of the work went to Buffalo for coloring, and it had to go f- as far as Guam and Australia and what? yeah, places really? like that. And so it was impossible to get it there if your art wasn't turned in on time. Right. And they would fine you 100 bucks every day you were late. Oh, man. And there were people who factored that into their month. You know, oh, well, I'm going to lose 100 or 200 bucks this month because I'm late but I I, I was fined once oh, good. and I realized boy you can't be that close to your deadline it just doesn't work emotionally I mean what if you got sick what if you broke a finger what if you wanted to go on a holiday god forbid I heard that Charles Schultz worked a full year in advance is that true I don't know I I really don't know I know that at one time, he did get a way, way, way ahead because yeah. he, um, I think one time he wanted to have uh, take a holiday and another time he had heart surgery and he knew he was going in for heart surgery. Yeah. So he did work ahead. But he was a tireless worker and he, yeah. uh, you know, he wrote it all himself. He drew it all himself. He, he pushed himself like very few other artists ever did. And right. yeah, he was a long way ahead. And he had nothing but disdain for people who were late on their deadlines. <laughs> what was your, how did you meet Charles Schultz? He, uh, well, he came to the Rubin Awards, which was um, the Oscar, it's the Oscars of the industry. Yeah. The year that I won for 1985, I think I won in 1986, which is the statuette. It's a statue that's about a foot and a little more than a foot high, and it's very heavy. It was uh, designed by Rube Goldberg in New oh, York nice. years ago. And I won, uh, I was nominated along with Jim Davis, who did Garfield. Right. Does Garfield. Yeah. And uh, that year I won. And Schultz was there at the uh, event. It was in Washington, D.C. And he came up to me at a, in a crowded hallway, and he said, I voted for you. And I was just shocked. Wow, yeah. Kathy Geiswhite introduced me because okay. they'd known each other for a while. 
And after that, um, I got to know him quite well. He phoned me and would tell me that he liked my work, and he became somebody I worked for almost as well. If Sparky likes this, then, you know, (laughs) that's okay. His nickname was Sparky. It took me a while to get used to that because it's kind of a goofy name. But anybody who called him Charles didn't know him well, and he would sort of smirk as if to say, well, he thinks he knows me, but he doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about your... um the animated specials you did one initially the bestest present right. in 1985 um how what was your role in in that production um how involved were you it all started with a script and do you know gordon pinsent who's an actor he's a canadian no. actor and he's a wonderful character actor and he's uh, a guy who's a little bit older than I am, and he's got the, the most uh, incredible voice. If you hear his voice in an advertisement, you immediately know it's him, or, or even as a, an actor uh, behind the scenes on an animated show or something. Yeah. He's just one of these guys. Anyways, he's a prolific writer, and one day I saw him in a restaurant, minding his own business, reading the paper, having breakfast, and I said, Mr. Pinson, how do you write a play? And he looked up at me wearily and said, just do it. Right. (laughs) So I thought, yeah, I guess that's what you do. So I went home and I wrote this play and it was the bestest present. Yeah. And I looked up the name of animation studios in Canada, found one in Ottawa, sent it off there. And I got a phone call at about nine o'clock at night from Bill Stevens, who ran this little studio. It was Crawley Films. Crawley was a big deal in Ontario. Everybody knew Crawley Films. And and Bill had bought uh, into the company and owned the animation part of it. And he called me from home and said, I'm reading this story and I love it. And I want to send you a contract. When can we start? And I thought, wow, this is too good to be true. (laughs) And it was what it was, it was true, and it was good. Yeah. And and the first show was a great little show because it was it took a full year to do. I flew down to to Ottawa as often as I could. By then we were living in North Bay. Yeah. We were moving to North Bay in 1985, I think, and and uh, so I was able to go back and forth. We had an airplane, so we would fly back and forth. And I worked on that show from beginning to end, and the whole storyboard, the all of the character development. Um, I again, I was plunged right into animation, what which I loved. Yeah, yeah. But this time, it was other people animating my work. And yeah. one day, when we were right in the middle of it, I walked down the hallway. It was a real old building. It was part of a church. And I walked down the hallway, and on one side there were kids, I thought, you know, like like in 18 and 20 uh, at drafting tables, animation tables, yeah. working. There were people in the sound department running the soundtrack back and forth and back and forth, yeah. getting all the, the you know, the frames in the correct, uh, you know, whatever they do, they yeah. were doing it. <laughs> and, uh, and there were storyboards were plastered all over the walls, and I stood there and I shut my eyes and said, if you don't stop and say, isn't this one of the most wonderful days of yeah. your life? You're missing an opportunity. And that Polaroid shot is in my head today. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. It wow. was great. And the show turned out to be a really nice little show. Yeah. I was very proud of it. And, of course, there's things wrong with it. If you see the train rolling around the, the display in the in the department store, the front wheels are missing. Oh, no. <laughs> but, well, I love those little animation oddities. Yeah. yeah that's great. And so from there, you did several more specials, well, holiday-themed usually, right? This this company ran into trouble, as animation studios often do, because yeah. they're, it's a very costly business. Yes. And sometimes people are in it for love, and they are not business people, and things happen. So... Uh, so uh, the first show um, was was produced by this company and um, Atkinson Film Arts, and it died. The yeah. film, the company died. So then um, I was approached by Lacewood Productions, also in Ottawa, and I did six shows with them. And they ran into all kinds of trouble and had to oh, let no. all their animators go. And then um, there were a couple of other companies that were interested, and I signed up with a, a third company. And I just wasn't happy doing a huge run of of stories one right after the other because you can't help but lose control of everything, everything. And is this I the just, television series? Yeah, I just wasn't happy. Yeah, it was fast, and the stories weren't good, and there were so many bad mistakes. And I was supposed to be checking every storyboard and working on the storyboards to make sure that continuity was there 
And while I was working on the storyboard, the damn thing would be overseas somewhere and they're finishing it off. <laughs> oh, no. You know, and I even though, and I felt lied to. Yeah. You know, why am I working 20, I mean, I was working full time on the strip. Yeah. So I'm up at four in the morning correcting storyboards when they're not even going to look at those storyboards. They're, they're animating it it's already. already done. Yeah. And mm. the, so many mistakes were made. It was just, it was just silly. You know, why not do a few shows and do them really well? Yeah. But the as as the animators joked, they don't want it good, they want it now. <laughs> and I wasn't willing to work under that uh, kind of pressure. And also, I didn't want to turn out crap. It was really not good work. Yeah. And yet your name is on it, and yeah. everybody thinks you did the um, whole thing. Oh, character. why couldn't she write a better story? Why oh, couldn't no. she draw a better background? I mean... And they, they say, fix it in post. You've heard that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's only so much you can fix in post. Right. And they tried. So I, what I did love was working with all the talent. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the artists, the writers, the, the, the background people, the camera people. The, I mean, the team of people there were just bar none. They always are. Animation studios are packed with talent and wonderful people, hardworking, yeah. willing to work around the clock, willing to work till they fall off their desk, you mm-hmm. know, a chair at their desk. But it's the people that own the companies that are ruthless and uh, they don't care often about quality. Unless, you know, you're with Disney or Pixar or, you know, a company that will do one good show a year right. or every yeah. so many years. But they can afford that. They sure can. Yeah. So this company farmed out the animation to a few different places, yeah. right? And oh, yeah. was that where you found the disconnect was? Yeah. It was when it went to animation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that show lasted for two seasons, I think, right? You did two seasons yeah. of that? And did you pull the plug on it? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay? I didn't. I didn't want it to go into syndication, and I think you need twenty six shows. I think we had twenty three, and they wanted three more, and I didn't want to do the okay. three more. No, I just stopped it. Yeah, I just I have too much pride, mm-hmm. and maybe there was money to be made there. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. And it's nice to 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 be with the big guys and yeah. and be yeah. syndicated in the states and all of that stuff, but I had so much control over the comic strip. And right. no control over this. Yeah, that's got to be frustrating. Yeah. It was worse than frustrating. It was terribly sad. Yeah. Because all the money and the time that went into it, it should be better. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I looked those some of those cartoons up on YouTube, and yeah, you're right. They they don't compare to those original specials at all. It's it is quite interesting seeing seeing where it went and hearing your thoughts on it and like yeah i'm glad to hear you say that you were not proud of it because no, it's not very they were good. awful and charles schultz had the same problem that when his uh show went to saturday morning shows right like every day yeah he hated it so badly he yeah. was miserable because it was awful work Right. And and somebody else had to write it, and somebody else had to draw it, and somebody else had to, you, you know... Uh, yeah, and that's kind of the nature of yeah. though, turning your property into a franchise, though, I think. It's okay if the people at the other end really care. Yeah. But if all they want is to, you know, we don't want it good, we want it now. Which is most TV execs. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. And I'm no slouch. And none of the people on the team were slouches. We yeah. were all super hard workers, but they pushed us beyond the ability to, to even get anything good out. Mm-hmm. And plus, they were farming it out to overseas people who didn't know the strip, didn't know the characters, didn't try to get them on model, yeah. didn't know how to animate. So you'd get key animation is the hand is up at the top, yeah. then the hand is down below, right. and then somebody does the four or five images in between. Yeah. Well, the key animation might be okay, but everything in between was garbage. Oh, man, and I noticed that, like, pans were all, I think, on twos. It was so choppy. It was... Uh, Horrible. It was really, yeah. <laughs> A lot of cost-saving uh, right. techniques there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's one scene where Michael is supposed to be selling hot dogs on a street corner, yeah. and they had no money to have cars go by. <laughs> yeah. So every time they did a close-up of Michael talking to somebody, you'd hear cars honking and oh, yeah. people walking. and stuff. Like yeah, <laughs> and they tried. I mean, you got to hand it to these guys. They're clever. The post guys mm-hmm. were clever, but they couldn't save it. No. no. It was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. 
Oh, wow. And so you haven't done anything like no. that since? No. Probably for that reason? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have never, you know, we've all been angry in our lives, right? Mm-hmm. We've all been angry to the point of tears, to the point of wanting to break something you really like. Yeah. Right? yeah. I have never been so angry and so unhappy as I was with those shows, the wow. last shows. Yeah. And, and I felt so ignored and so insulted because it could have been good. With yeah. just a little effort, because every artist on the show would have given and did give their best. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't fault, fault the artists or the writers. They were really good writers, but you can only write so fast. And if they <laughs> right. take an unfinished script and then try to finish it as it's being animated... Yikes. yeah, that's not going to work. No! Yeah. Well. So it was horrible. Um, but at least your comic strip... Lived on after sure. that, yeah, and it oh, probably yeah. another ten years or so, I think. After well, I that. can't believe that I was able to do all that work. Yeah, yeah. So, did you have any assistants working I did. with you? Yeah, I did. I had uh, a couple of artists working with me. I hired a wonderful girl from uh, California for a while, and she had been working on Dennis and Menace. Okay. And really wanted to move back east. Her mom and dad were in Buffalo. She wanted to move back east. So I hired her and she was terrific. Uh, She brought her husband and her kids and her husband wasn't happy in northern Ontario. He really wasn't happy. So they they moved down to Buffalo and I hired, by then I knew the value of a really good graphic artist. So I hired a, a girl who lived in North Bay and she was absolutely fabulous. I couldn't have asked for a better artist. And it worked out that I would draw everything in pencil, and mm-hmm. I would ink just the characters. Okay. And Laura would ink everything else. And that's how things became more and more detailed, because she was such a good artist that I could draw every leaf on the tree and draw every bo- uh, oh, yeah. brick on the building. So this is probably the late 90s? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And that's and then yeah and then you started like putting more like playing with shading right. and the, the different patterns right. and that kind of well, thing. Well, of course, as well. computer technology was enhanced all along the way. We yeah. went from not having really anything to to full color and beyond. Mm-hmm. And so a friend of Laura's was a wonderful colorist. So we hired her too, and I had some of the best artwork out there because I I wanted it yeah and I hired people who could do that for me and it was magic to stand behind uh, and uh, somebody and watch them you know fully color something and have it come to 3d life almost with uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know touching buttons and moving a mouse you know just great and did um did that all translate well when it went to actually went to yes. print? yes yeah. oh yes it did okay. well we had to be aware always that some papers printed in black and white even the Sundays? Yes. Oh, okay. Some some papers, especially international papers... Would they print the color version in black and white, or they, would you send them... Yeah, the, the color the version, version they would do in black and white. Oh, okay. So the Japan Times, for example, is an English-language newspaper, yeah. but it just printed in black and white for okay. a while. It might be in color now, but at the time, we had to think, if we, if we color it, they might take that color image... And you have to think of everything in terms of grayscale. So right. you couldn't have a, a navy blue jacket next to a dark red house. They'd be the same color. They'd be the same color. <laughs> right. So we had to always be aware of the, the gray tones. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and and that was a, a skill in its own. Right? Really, yeah. Yeah. I imagine so. Yeah. Um, when you finished the strip, um, or the, when you finished the main story, and you decided to end um, after Elizabeth's wedding... Uh, you went back, and your strip became a series of kind of reprints, and then you also did originals yes. with younger kids. Yes. Uh, what? Why did you decide to do that? Well, like, like what you said when you when I first opened your book, yeah, you said, "Oh, I don't really like those. Those are ones that I did right early on, and I wasn't too happy with them, but we put them in the book anyways." Yeah. Okay. And when you're done, you always look at that and say, "You know what?" That beginning, I was a little rough, but that's how you are when you start any project, yeah. right? Until you get used to it and become a professional at it, mm-hmm. y- your your beginnings are always pretty evident. So if they were going to rerun my work from the beginning, I wanted to go back to the beginning and change a lot of the stuff because I simply wasn't happy with it. Also, there were there was character development missing. There was story arcs that were just out of nowhere that needed some kind of beginning uh, yeah. you know yeah. i mean i really wanted to to fix it 
and to make it better. Okay. Be, simply because I'm such a perfectionist, I guess. Right. I don't think of myself as a perfectionist. I just want it right. And so I, I wanted that. I wanted to go back. And so I added a lot of new material, and I probably extended it about a year yeah. with new material simply because I wanted to fix it. And if you fix one thing, maybe that means you have to fix something else <laughs> right. along the way. So, yeah. And it was a good decision to make for two reasons. One, um, editors who were not comfortable running the strip a second time wanted that new material. Yeah. And continued the strip, which was great of them to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very lucky to have that. But it also gave me a chance to, you know, make the beginning better, which... How often do you get yeah, to do that? Yeah, right? yep, definitely. And you feel like you accomplished that. I did. Yeah. I did. And yeah. so when you decided to stop that, um, did uh, did most papers just continue on reprinting the rest most of the papers stories? Most papers did, yeah. Okay. Some, some dropped it, yeah. which is understandable. Yep. Some uh, amalgamated with other papers. Some papers went out of business. I yeah. mean, that happens. Yeah. But right now, I'm. I would say I'm about... 1400 papers still perhaps in around there what was your height what how many over papers? 2000 papers okay but of course it sounds like a lot but some papers just took the dailies yeah some papers just took the sundays right and some took both yeah so they would count everything as a market so it, it sort of doubled you know with some just taking the dailies and some yeah. just taking the sundays they but you'll take it numbers are everything right that's numbers <laughs> are everything so all in all yeah uh, there were over 2,000 papers carrying for better, for worse. And nice. that, and it went into many uh, international papers, but they were always English language papers pretty well, except for there were about six that were not. I think it was translated into a few languages. But the problem was that um, that it really, I used a lot of puns and yeah. wordplay. And, and I always wondered if puns translate it to doesn't. Chinese. Yeah, no, no, it doesn't. Not at all. And even into French, it doesn't translate. Like, I mean, uh, paying through the nose, for example, is a great visual for a gag. Yeah. But I think in Quebec, it's someone's hands in my pocket, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. And so all of these puns just would not translate. In Denmark, they had a cartoonist translating the comics, and he was just loved trying to bring puns into it and and he was a real master and i had someone do some translation for me who was also a cartoonist and she just did a great job in into okay. french yeah and uh you know but that's rare yeah to have a translator who can translate puns and wordplay so would they just translate it and let the joke fall flat in some cases they had no choice right in some cases, they changed it altogether because hmm. they it would still work in with the storyline. Yeah. But because I didn't speak Danish, you would I, never know. I wouldn't yeah. have known. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so I want to also ask you about your fabrics because that's kind of what you're doing now, right? Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, yeah about that. What you're okay. up to these days? Well, it all started with um, with uh, invitation to well. I was given the, a star on the Walk of Fame in Toronto. Yes, I was nice. going to be on the stage with Shania Twain and uh, Andrea Martin and some other really neat people. Yeah. And I thought, well, what, what do you wear to something like that? And I wanted it to be funny and fun because I'm a cartoonist and, mm -hmm. and I wanted to breeze onto the stage wearing something funny. But I couldn't find any fabric that I liked. And I looked and looked, and I had a friend who uh, actually was a designer and would have made a dress for me had I found the right fabric. And by the time I was getting close to the event, I was desperate. No, well, not desperate, but I was wondering <laughs> what the hell is going. I'm going to wear. So I got this idea, and I went to a local wedding dress shop, and I bought a wedding dress, and I drew all over the skirt with cartoon, uh, just cartoon faces. I can show it to you. It's upstairs. Sure, I'd love to see it. Yeah, and, um, and I wore that, and it, it was a huge hit. Everybody thought, you know, where did you get that dress, and did you do that? Well, my God, that's incredible. <laughs> and it got a lot of comments, and it was very elegant, but really funny. Yeah. So, um, you know, I wore it a few times to different events, and then we sort of uh, retired it to a hanger upstairs. And one day, my daughter said, "You know that fabric squeezy paint that you buy at Walmart is going to deteriorate someday. We better digitize that image." Mm, yeah. So she took this huge dress, opened the thing right up, and photographed it many times, and was able to digitize it into, you know, a, a pattern which uh, through a program uh, that she and my graphic artist, I've got a graphic artist who's just a great 
guy. He's working. Um, he's been working with with us for many years in North Bay, and he was able to take a program and turn it into a pattern and multiply it in all directions so that it was an unending. Uh, I think it's called wallpapering. Okay. Yeah. So we learned an awful lot about how to do a, a design, but we were again reinventing the wheel. And a friend of mine is a graphic. Uh, she's a cartoonist, but she's also a fabric designer. She mostly does um, quilting fabrics. So we brought her in to North Bay from Newfoundland, and she did a week-long uh, uh, training session for my yeah. daughter, myself, my designer, and I, and taught us how to properly repeat a fabric pattern. So then I started to draw patterns, which really are a 12 by 12 inch design, okay. which you add maybe 12 different characters to and then when you wallpaper the design you plug those little extras into the holes that are created as you're making the the pattern and then you reduce it down on the screen and you can see where the colors don't work and where dark areas might be lightened and because you don't want your eye to be drawn to one specific spot yeah yeah and so that's that's what we've been up to and uh she and i deborah payton her name is we just came back from a big fabric show in uh new york where all the designers go and it's a combined fabric design and paper design so you're going from people who are making quilts and children's clothes and bedding and all that to an area where they're doing wallpaper and and greeting cards and uh, wrapping paper and things like that it's very exciting and there's lectures on um, licensing and marketing and legal issues and trends and and color forecasts and things like that so it was a marvelous event to go to and inspired us to uh, perhaps get a booth next year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you have products, some products for sale on your website? On the site? Well, we do. But we're, you know, we're kind of holding back a little bit because as we got into the fabric designs, we decided to move. And we packed up two households, two big households, threw everything into a giant truck and landed in North Vancouver and we're still unpacking. Yeah. As you saw today, I'm, you know, just finished yeah. unpacking more stuff today. And it's awful. And until I'm I mean, I'm such a nitpicker that until I get my own environment tidied up, it's awfully hard for me to sit down and relax and do cartoons. Yeah. So fortunately I don't have to. Right. <laughs> but I will I will push myself into the deadlines again uh, as soon as um, as soon as the fall comes around because mm. I need a deadline. Right. I need I need that commitment. I can't just I can't just say to myself, like somebody perhaps doing a graphic novel, I will have this finished by the end of May. I mean that's it's Kind that, of arbitrary, yeah. That's an overwhelming amount of self-discipline. And yeah. I thought of myself as self-discipline, but by golly, the whip is cracked if you've got a contract and, <laughs> and you're working for a client. Right. You need to produce. And so I, I would like that again, but not so stringent. I, well, I can say that I'll fine you 100 bucks every time you're late <laughs> if you want. <laughs> then you'd have to be following what I did and be on my case. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got enough to do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay, one final question here. Okay. What What's on the horizon for, for better or for worse, if anything? Well, there will be a, a another contract review because everything's still contract. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see where they want to go with it, whether they want to continue with it in the number of papers. I think if there are a significant number of papers, the syndicate will want to continue. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when we renegotiate the contract, which is great. Um, I'm going to head into the fabrics. We've just got we've got one book out there. I don't know. Honestly, I'm very happy with the work I did. If somebody sees it and wants to do something else with it, that would be great. But I have no plans. I have no marketing people. I have no agent. I have no nothing. I'm very happy to be getting an income from the work that I did. So that's a luxury and allows me to play around with these fabrics and uh, do birthday cards for friends and the occasional goofy painting, which I do. 
<laughs> Great. <laughs> well, thank you for spending this time with us. I, I completely I enjoyed this interview, and um, I hope our listeners are enjoying it as well. Well, it's great to know you are enthused enough about my work to ask questions about it, because right now I consider myself an old fart. I'm 69. I'm going to be 70 in a year, and I just can't believe it, because in my head, I'm still 19. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's great to talk to young people and have them like my work. That's a, a wonderful, wonderful compliment. Thanks. Oh, great. And I hope our readers, our listenership is young people, and I'm hoping that they they will have fun memories of this and find this interesting as well. Great, so, me too. Yeah, thank you very much. For more Pullbox Podcast episodes, you can check out pullboxpodcast.com to submit a reader poll. Uh, you can email thepullboxpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at Twitter and on Instagram at pullboxpodcast. And you can follow me, Curtis, on Instagram at Curtis Bidley. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at arkwolf, A-R-K-W-U-L-F. Uh, you, can, you can also find all of our other great podcasts over at thunderquack.com. And uh, uh, that's the home of the Thunderquack Podcast Network, of which we are proudly a part. And, uh, and if you want to help support all of our podcasts at Thunderquack, you can do that by heading to patreon.com slash thunderquack. And, uh, and, and you, can, you can pledge your support over there. Every dollar helps. But uh, if you're a Pullbox fan and supporter, then you'd definitely be interested in the $20 level, which allows you to get all three episodes of the Pullbox podcast, all three of our books, as one super long episode uh, right at the beginning of the month, as opposed to having to wait for the individual episodes to be released. So you can find all that at patreon.com slash thunderquack and all of our other podcasts at thunderquack.com. <laughs>